Want to go ahead and read the thing for us? I do. This is a neat thing. Thanks. All right. <clears throat> In 1927, people living along the Sunda Strait in Indonesia noticed some unusual activity taking place in the water. Twenty miles offshore, there were frequent, unpredictable earthquakes and changing habits in the local wildlife. Most troublingly, steam began rising from the shallow water midway between Java and Sumatra. Local pilots and fishing boats gave the area a wide berth, a caution that was repaid when the steam began to spout fire, pumice, and ash at the end of the year. By early 1928, a new landmass had begun to take shape, a conical black stump lurking just below the surface of the water. Within a few months, it rose high enough to form a permanent landmark, one that could be observed to grow a few meters higher every year as it belched out smoke, cinders, and the occasional tongue of lava on an unpredictable cycle. Indonesia added their new island to nautical charts and gave it a name, Anak Krakatau. That first part is a cute name for a mini-volcano. Anak translates to child or baby. The second part of the name is as unsettling as the island's rapid growth. It refers to the volcano that used to be right here. Right underneath little Anak, the one that blew itself apart in an eruption so explosive, it killed 40,000 people, washed away hundreds of communities, and transformed scientific understanding of how volcanoes behave. On this episode of Relative Disasters, the 1883 eruption of Krakatoa. Thank you so much. Welcome to Relative Disasters, the show where my brother and I manage our existential dread by talking about terrible and interesting historical events and their context, implications, and any related sidebars we feel like discussing. I'm Ella, loud noise analyst for Relative Disasters Historic Sound Collection. And I'm her brother Greg, Island Demolition Safety Manager for Relative Disasters Demo Company, Oceana Division. Thanks so much for that interesting and unsettling story. Yeah. Um, I knew a little bit about the Krakatoa story, but I did not know that it gave birth to a mini volcano. Yeah. Isn't that fun? <laughs> it's really... Okay. It's unsettling, man. <laughs> it's... If you think about the big volcanoes that go boom, the idea yeah. that there could be another little volcano that like comes up to grow a big volcano is... Uh... It's not great. We, we can't afford the music rights, but just pretend I'm singing Circle of Life right now. Oh, we're going to do a music segment at the end, so no worries. <laughs> okay. Okay. Our main source for this episode is Simon Winchester's excellent 2003 book, Krakatoa, and a few bits and pieces I found on the internet. Those will oh, be dear. in the show notes. So pack your bags. We are off to the Sunda Strait which is the body of water that separates Java and Sumatra, two of the 17,000 islands in the Southeast Asian country of Indonesia. It's really beautiful there. It's super green. Uh, a lot of agriculture. Beautiful, beautiful yep. beaches. Yeah. It's divine. I want to retire there. Like, cool. right now. <laughs> uh, we're going to be time traveling on this episode. We're going all the way back to 1883. At this time, this part of the world is known as the Dutch East Indies. 
You may have gathered from that that the Dutch are there. Did you get that? Oh, I, you know what? I put two and two together. Congrats. Uh, you might be wondering what the Dutch are doing all the way out there. It's a long way from the Netherlands. Uh, they're running the Dutch East India Company would be my guess. They're colonizing. Let's call it what it is. They're colonizing. And, and what do we always say? Colonization, colonization ruins, ruins everything. everything. It's our motto. If we had a motto, that would be it. it I, think, I think we need that on t-shirts. Bumper stickers. Relative disasters. Colonization <laughs> ruins everything. It all goes back to the colonization. There's no context. Just... The Dutch are colonizing. They're making themselves a lot of money in the agricultural yeah. trade. It's not just the Dutch East India Company. It's also like various other agricultural businesses. Okay. In Java, specifically, they're growing indigo, rubber, and coffee. What do those things sure. have in common, Greg? Uh, they're cash crops, but you can't eat them. Right. And they're using what used to be rice paddies, rice paddy fields, to grow those things. Sure. They're okay. also taxing the heck out of local farmers and importing huge numbers of migrant workers to deal with these cash crops. Uh, there are massive famines across the island throughout the 19th century thanks to this but i don't want you to yeah. worry because a lot of dutch traders also got rich <laughs> it's fine everything's fine it's all good everything's fine it's all yeah profitable yeah. in may of so, 1883 things were humming along for java and sumatra and the dutch east indies right up until guess what's going to ruin your agriculture a uh, volcano volcanoes are going to make it better you get one more guess well eventually but in the <laughs> short term they're not going to be too great for it at this time we're talking earthquakes earthquakes yeah that'll, do it. that'll ruin your okay. field so basically what you're saying is that the dutch invaded colonized and ticked off the gods is that what i'm is it, am i am i drawing the proper inferences here so the wikipedia article did not go into <laughs> that but uh if you read between the, the lines, wikipedia article that's about it, yeah. Uh, Greg, I have a fact for you. Okay, I love facts. Indonesia and its 17,000 islands. I can't get my head around nope. that number. That's so many I islands. Love, I love that so much, yep. Uh, it sits right on the edge of a continental plate. Yeah. And that means that it's also one of the most volcanic places on Earth. So it's part of the ring okay. of fire that loops around the Pacific Ocean. It's, it's like adjacent. It's a little extra loop that comes off the ring of okay. fire. So it's like a corona off the ring of fire. No, not exactly. It's like a handle. It's like an okay. ear sticking out. If you think of <laughs> the ring of fire as a face, which I like sure. to do because it sure, kind sure, of humanizes sure. a, a big yeah. problem. Not problem. Give it Johnny Cash's face. <laughs> it's, it's the right ear of the... Uh, That's the right ear of the face of the ring of, the of ring fire. fire. Got it. Yep. Okay. Uh, so what's driving this volcanic activity is the friction and pressure of the edge of the Indo-Australian Oceanic Plate being pushed yep. under the edge of the Eurasian Continental Plate. That would do it. So in geology, it's called, or in plate tectonics, it's called a subduction zone. It's one plate being like forced into pushed another plate another. Yeah. and kind of going down, like curling under and melting uh, you can kind of picture in your head that's a lot of potential energy that's coming out of that motion. Yep. So under Indonesia, the plates are moving faster than average, and that means there's okay. increased heat and pressure along the weak spots and just, you know, extra volcanoes. Sure, 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 sure. So most of Indonesia, all those 17,000 islands, they're sitting on top of millions of years worth of volcanic buildup, which also means we've got incredibly rich farmland and dozens and dozens of active volcanoes, both below the water and above. Fun. Fun. 
So that's the big picture view. And then if we zoom in a little, we can make this even better for you. The fault under the Sunda Strait between Sumatra and Java, those are two of the big islands of Indonesia, that fault line isn't straight. It has a kink. Oh, okay. So (laughs) it looks kind of like a hairpin. Okay. And you're looking at it and you're thinking, this is like 70 miles below the ocean, the bed of the ocean. Yeah. And it's a straight line right up until it gets to the Sunda Strait. And then it like makes this little hairpin and you're like, oh, that just doesn't look safe or practical. Like you want a straight line sure. if you're forcing sure. the edges of two continental plates together. <laughs> sure. Yeah. A that kink makes sense. is really like, I'm sorry, I'm just going to say it. It's extremely poor craftsmanship. Yeah. No, you're, it just, you're not wrong. It makes this. It's just going to create problems. <laughs> you already have these plates grinding together. Um, yeah. And this. This kink just means that the grinding is even less predictable than, say, like along the average fault line. I don't sure. know, like the San Andreas Fault. Sure. So under the Sunda Strait, there's this increased pressure. There's more melting. There's a bigger magma pool. And it's just all very like violent and unpredictable. Okay. None of which you can see from the surface. Right, right. Yeah. So it's not unheard of to experience an earthquake in this area, obviously. Sure. I kind of get the feeling that if there's no earthquake that day, people are like, "Uh (laughs) (laughs) uh-oh. Yeah. We want a little treble just to make sure nothing's hung up down there. Oh, gosh. But in the spring of 1883, there were so many, and they were so much stronger than the tremors that people were used to. And it was also impossible for them to pinpoint where the earthquakes were coming from. So you have this Dutch administration that's sitting in their office in Batavia, which is now Jakarta, and they're trying to figure out where the earthquakes are coming from. Right. Nobody is really pointing a finger at the Sunda Strait because, again, it's underwater. Sure. You know. And we all know that earthquakes can't happen there. Let us now bring you to a cute little island in the strait. Okay. It's uninhabited, but it's a great landmark for the ships that are navigating the strait. It's got three pointy peaks in a row, large, medium, and small. Um, Mm -hmm. It's covered in just lush green forest. Tons of animals, tons of plants, tons of birds. And then it's surrounded by white sand beaches. Mm. Tropical paradise. Did you know that white sand is fish poop? I did not. Yeah. Well, black sand is volcano debris. Yep. Did you know that? That's right. I did. Is there anything between (laughs) those two extremes? (laughs) Well, there's like brown, regular old dirt sand. I I, I think I do prefer a fish poop beach. Yeah, yeah, it's nice. It's good stuff. So this is the island of Krakatoa, in case my foreshadowing was not enough for you there. Oh! Mm-hmm. Sorry, should I take mm-hmm. that again? Or... Sound more surprised. <laughs> Do it again. Oh! <laughs> That's my Muppet surprise voice. Very good. On May 28th, 1883, the source of the earthquakes are immediately explained when one of the three peaks, that would be the baby one, mm-hmm. the one on the end, it begins to erupt. Okay. This is a dramatic explosion, so it can be seen from the mainland, and it can be seen Jeez. from boats. It shoots up an ash and steam cloud. It makes a really loud bang that is heard yep. in Batavia, 100 miles away. Yep. And then there's this kind of spectacular but very contained eruption. So it's just okay. like spouting out lava, steam, ash over the ocean. Nobody is hurt because nobody lives on the island. Sure. There are stories of tourists like hiring boats to take them out to see the volcano, which sounds so fun. I would never do this, but. No. <laughs> but yeah, so it's kind of like a local landmark for a few days. Okay. 
Okay. A week or so later, the governor of the Dutch East Indies sends out a party of geologists to see what has happened. Okay. These are Dutch scientists, and they take meticulous notes about what they find, which includes pumice floating for miles in the water around Krakatoa. Pumice, yeah. Pumice or pumice? I always say pumice, but, you know, there are people out there who say puma, so I don't know. <laughs> pumice floating for miles. Yeah. Uh, that white sand beach now has a foot of ash on top of it. Oh, fun. And most tellingly, Greg, nothing is still yep. alive on the island except for a single spider living in a crack underneath the rock. Now that spider is a trooper. Right? That that spider needs like... It's a survivor. I don't know, a stamp or a coin or something. Something. Uh, there are pictures from this expedition. They took a photographer along. And they sure. show what looks like a moonscape. So there are just like blackened tree stumps and then this carpet of wow. pale gray ash. And then uh, okay. pumice chunks. Pumice? <laughs> Lava rocks. It's just going to mess you up for the rest of the episode. Strewn around and floating in the water. Yeah. Uh, so it's very interesting. Nobody's been hurt. The geologists are thrilled to be there. They take all kinds of data. Sure. Yeah. So remember, we don't have like the science of volcanology yet. But geologists right. are still, like, interested in volcanoes, so they're starting to classify and study volcanoes, especially in places like Indonesia, where there's a volcano on every island. Yeah. Sort of. And under every island. <laughs> <laughs> so there is some data available, and people are really eager to add to that. Sure. The type of pumice suggests to the Dutch geologists that Krakatoa is a stratovolcano, and this is a new classification, so they're super excited about it. It tends to produce this very thick lava that is yeah. bubbly. And very warm, as I understand it. It's hot. Yeah, you can actually burn yourself <laughs> on it if you get a fresh oh. chunk. Well, so be, be careful, We want to be listeners. careful. Yep. Um, Use a ladle. <laughs> A big one, not the good one. A big, big ladle. Get one from uh, Timothy Dexter. Don't use the good one. <clears throat> Sorry. So these mm, bubbles yes. is actually like what makes some kinds of pumice float, by the way. The, the bubbles that sure, are like yeah. trapped in the rock. That's why pumice. Did I say pumice or pumice? I, I don't care at this point. <laughs> but when it's liquid? But when it's liquid, this type of very thick lava... Um, oh, this is gross. Like one geologist I read about called it sticky, which I don't love. Sticky. Right. What he means is a very thick, like viscous lava that moves sure. very slowly. Um, it's not super hot compared to other kinds of lava, and it's full of these air bubbles. Okay. And that means that the buildup of gas inside the bubbles can do all kinds of fun things. And in mm. stratovolcanoes, it tends to become explosive. Oh. And the explosions can okay. be very powerful and very, very unpredictable. Because no matter how much yeah. you know about your volcano, you're never going to know the amounts and the types of gases that are mixed into that sticky lava. Sure. Got it? Yeah. That's not good. That's, it's not that's good. Real it's bad. so fascinating, but it's not good. Yeah. I, I mean, it's fascinating stuff, but you don't want to be standing right there. No. You don't. You want to evacuate because stratovolcanoes... <laughs> tend to erupt in a dramatic fashion. So the magma bubbling up underneath Krakatoa has a really interesting property. So I've described to you the average kind of sticky lava. This yeah. takes it to the next level. This is cooler, and it's actually so thick, it's plugging up the vents under the craters of these three small, medium, and large peaks on Krakatoa. Oof. Okay. And because it's sitting right over that kink <laughs> in the plates. Yep, yep. <laughs> 
Magma keeps packing into the area below the plugs, which of course brings more gas bubbles into the mixture, more lava closer to the surface. And what comes along with that is increasing pressure against the plugs under the craters. So what happens on the May 28th eruption is that one of these plugs blows apart. Sure. And the crater spat out some lava and ash and then immediately resealed itself because it's like full up to the neck of this very thick, very bubbly lava. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. So the result, the visible result, was that there is this explosion, ash cloud, pumice fall, and then it stops with very little of that like potential energy under Krakatoa actually being released. Okay. If you think of a giant sneeze that you can like feel coming up your throat and up your nose. Sure. And you do that yep. like, ah, uh, ah, uh, ah. Uh, yep. Yeah. But you just have like a little yep. snort instead of the full sneeze, which is yep. still like trapped in your head. This is... This is the volcanic equivalent. This is like a little, ah, ah. Gotcha. Gotcha. It's a, it's a great analogy. It's a great analogy. I'm, I'm, 100% um, here for I'm it. expecting geologists and volcanologists to jump on that immediately. Yep. But to, you know, just observers on the mainland, the eruption was pretty dramatic and it looked like the volcano was all cleaned out and ready to go back to sleep. Okay. Which is what you want with your volcano. You want it to have like a little vent. Get over and itself then and then take just a, take like, a break. Yeah, take a break. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Makes sense. Because remember, it's killed everything on this island. Yeah. You know? <laughs> and that was just a little one. <laughs> that, was, that was the preliminary, like, quarter sneeze. Yep. Uh, so after their survey, the Dutch geologists concluded the eruption was over. They take their specimens and data, and I hope they took the spider. The spider deserves... A nicer life. The spider and, deserved a nice trip right? after that, yeah. It deserved yeah. a vacation. Yeah. Um, they take all that back to Batavia to study, and people just, like, kind of went back to their daily life without worrying about it. It's an uninhabited okay. island. It's surrounded by deep water. It's, like, 20 or 30 miles off the shore of Java and Sumatra. Okay. So it is distant. And like I said, it looks like it's just let off a bunch of steam. So what could it really do? In the future, right, right is the what, feeling. What, what possibly could go wrong here? Later that summer, exactly 100 days after this little mini-eruption that killed everything on the island, Krakatoa begins to erupt for real. Okay. The May eruption begins with those ash clouds, and this one does too. The one before had been about 100 feet high. These ones are 17 miles high. Oh my god, what? Yeah, it's a huge difference. Holy cow. So the volcano begins to erupt. These massive ash clouds shoot up and cover the sky within a few hours. On the west coast of Java, the temperature shoots up and the air is full of ash. It's yep. just absolutely stifling. People are choking to death on the air because of this ash. Um, people are being wow. blinded. They're getting ash in their eyes. There are lava bombs. That is yep. the pet name for these boiling hot rocks the size of refrigerators dropping yep. out of the clouds. Um, and all that day and night for between 14 and 20 hours, those three peaks on Krakatoa are just pouring lava, ash, pumice, and gases into the sky. So it's it's a nightmare. It's a hellscape. Yeah. So by the next morning, people are already dying. The local landscape is unrecognizable, and everyone is frantically trying to escape by land and water. Right. On the morning of August 28th, 1883... The island begins to explode in a series of four very loud bangs. Now, when you say very loud. Yes, I'll get into that. <laughs> okay. So when people talk about Krakatoa, 
One of the fun facts they usually mention is that the eruption produces the loudest sound in recorded human history. Yeah. It's estimated that the third of these four explosions produces a sound equivalent to 200 megatons of TNT. That's a lot. Yeah, it's a lot. It's a lot. I did a shallow dive into decibels and what they can do to you. So the modern yeah. estimate is that the sound of the eruption on Krakatoa, like if you were hovering just above the crater, right? the sound would have been about 310 decibels. Oh, my goodness. Which sounds loud. Um, did you know that unprotected exposure to a sound of 200 decibels will kill you? It will just yeah. drop you dead. I, I did know that. Yeah. Yes, that's wow. Loud noises are just real, real bad for humans. We can't take yep. it. So I had I had heard mm -hmm. the eruption from Krakatoa was actually heard in North America. Did you run across that at all? It was not heard in North America, but North America was affected. I'll get into that. At Batavia, the capital city of the Dutch East Indies, which is 100 miles away from Krakatoa, the sound yeah. is measured at 172 decibels. So it's just below the level that's going to kill you. Yeah. It's the equivalent of a hand grenade going off a few feet from your ear. Yeah. Uh, in Perth, Australia, which is 2,000 miles away from Krakatoa, yeah. the noise sounds like gunshots. It's loud enough to scare livestock because there are all these reports of sheep running off. Wow. And if we move even further away, the sound is heard yeah. as distant cannon fire on Rodriguez Island in the Indian Ocean, which is 5,000 miles away. Jeez. So it's estimated that 10% of the people living on planet Earth hear the sounds of Krakatoa erupting, which is almost unthinkable. That's nuts. Yeah, that is insane. Wow. Uh, the other interesting thing about this was the sound produced a pressure wave. So after it dropped below audible levels, the pressure wave continues to ripple around the globe and back. It goes around the globe three and a half times. And we know that because weather station barometers around the world are able to pick it up for the next three days. Every 34 hours, they get another dip. Oh my isn't that God. crazy? That's really hard to wrap your head around. It's wild, isn't it? That is wild. So what exactly caused this unthinkably loud and dramatic eruption? Do you have a theory? Do you think it was aliens? No, I think <laughs> it was plate tectonics, but... What's your answer? <laughs> right. I mean, I told you earlier about the plate tectonics and the cooler, sure. like thicker, sticky magma observed in the May eruption. But Greg, that's not the whole story. Okay. So volcanologists can tell from the debris from Krakatoa that there was a second type of magma present. And this was hotter, thinner. It was much less gassy, so fewer bubbles. So basically, the heat of this thinner magma causes the gas in the cooler layer to expand which puts rapidly multiplying additional pressure on those plugs over the 100 days the volcano was, quote-unquote, inactive. Right. The pressure builds up to the point where it becomes greater than the strength of the rock surrounding the magma chamber. Uh-huh. So yep. the noise, those four loud bangs, are caused by thousands of tons of rock being ripped apart from the inside by this explosive pressure. All right, this <sighs> is the full sneeze. That is, yeah, I was going to say, that's, very loud. that's the full sneeze. This part of the eruption is accompanied by a massive pyroclastic flow. So if everything on the island wasn't already dead. <laughs> oh, it was real dead by the time. It was super dead by that. The ghosts got melted. Yep. All right. I hope that spider wow. was far, far away. I can't I'm glad that it. they brought the spider off. Yeah, I'm, I'm here for Team Spider, I don't know man. that they did, Greg. It's just my speculation. 
I like to imagine that the spider moved to a very nice farm upstate. <laughs> sure. Anyway. Sure. Sure. That's what happened. I told you before that Krakatoa is an uninhabited island separated from the mainland by 20 or 30 miles of ocean water. It's in... The Sunda Strait makes a kind of V, and Krakatoa is okay. right in the wide part of the V as it opens onto the ocean. So it's not close to anything. Sure. Sure. Okay. You yeah. would think that a pyroclastic flow <laughs> would roll down the side of Krakatoa and into yeah. the water, and that would be it. That is not what happens. The pyroclastic flow thrown out by this eruption was an estimated 2,500 feet high. And it just rolls over the surface of the ocean at speeds up to 200 miles per hour. Oh, my God. Yep. When it reaches the shore of Sumatra, which, again, 20 or 30 miles away, it's yep. still fast and hot enough to kill people instantly. Oh, my God. Some 2,000 people in a village called Ketimbang are killed when this pyroclastic flow rolls ashore. I mean, you'd think that the ocean would have slowed it down a little, especially over 20 or 30 miles, but... So this is really interesting. The flow consists of two layers. So it's got a heavier bottom layer that's like debris, the super hot stuff, um, and the heavier stuff. That flows down and like falls into the ocean, under the ocean. But the top layer, which is superheated gases and not a lot of debris, it actually just like slides right across the water the water doesn't slow it down actually it may have even sped it up because there's no friction oh geez. yeah it's nightmare hellscape material yeah and you said this thing was moving at like 20 miles an hour no honey 200 200 miles per oh. hour the people on the shore of sumatra would have would have seen it coming would not have known what it was and by the time they figured out that they needed to run it would have been on like right on top of them yeah oh my god Now, each of these massive, loud, violent explosions represents not only gas and ash and lava flying into the air, but hundreds of thousands of tons of rock. Okay. And this is the island itself. Like, it's just shattering, it's flying off, and it's landing in the water. It's just blowing apart the whole island. Exactly. Amazing. But at the same time, because there's this massive magma chamber underneath the island and it's draining... Within hours of the beginning of the explosion, it collapses into itself underwater, forming an enormous three-mile by five-mile caldera about 40 feet underwater. Oh, my God. Those two things working together, like the island exploding and this caldera like coming into existence all of a sudden, those kind of work together to create something even worse than the pyroclastic flow or the loudest sound in recorded human history. And that would be a series of massive and very powerful tsunamis. Yeah. It's hard for us to get a sense of how large and powerful these waves were. Yeah, right, right. Uh, Most estimates put the height of the waves at 40 meters, which is 131 feet tall. That's that's too big of a wave. It's the height of a 12-story building. God. Uh, a 46-meter-high tsunami wipes out the port town of Merak in northern Java, which yep. is 30 miles away by sea. And we know how tall it was because it knocked over the lighthouse. It came oh up God. over the top of their lighthouse and knocked it over. After going 30 miles and over. Wow. Yep. Okay. Uh, an estimated 300 small villages along the Sunda Strait were just wiped out of existence. Yeah. Um, yeah. Some of which were never rebuilt. Sure. The closest inhabited island to Krakatoa, which 
which is a little island called Sebesi. It was okay. devastated. Three hundred, yeah. sorry, three thousand people lived there. Um, the entire population of the island is killed by either the gas cloud, the pyroclastic flow, or the tsunami that followed immediately afterwards. Yeah. Waves from the tsunamis reached ships at anchor in South Africa and Hawaii. Oh. Okay, so they were okay. still big enough yeah. to knock around ships at anchor in South Africa. The volume of water that was displaced is large enough to cause flooding as far away as Kolkata, India. Okay. And these waves, this is another thing that I had not appreciated before I read about them. These waves come hours apart in some cases. Oh, sure. Yeah. Thousands of people who survived the early waves are killed when they try and return to their villages to rescue people. Uh, Just nightmare hellscape. Nightmare hellscape. Yeah, it's just not great. No. It's just, no. It's a volcano. The rock isn't flying a helicopter and to save anyone from that. <laughs> if you watched the nature documentary San Andreas Fault with the rock, <laughs> you would know that there are ways out of this. Uh, but, but only if you've got two very important things, a helicopter and the rock. The rock Without them, you're just not available. Yeah. God, that is that is it like that's destruction on a like human destruction. Like we've talked a lot mm-hmm. about like environmental collapses and and destructive events like you know the the cretaceous paleogene extinction mm-hmm. event but like this is the wiping out of human beings and their settlements on a scale that i don't think we've ever really talked about before it's just erasure um there are miles and miles of the coastline where once these waves recede you could not tell that there had been families community yeah. uh farms roads railroads you could not tell any of those things about uh, it's 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 like my my mind keeps shying away mm-hmm. from it like it's just too big krakatoa is difficult to talk about because it's too big in a way that is hard to make sense of yeah uh, all right all right but luckily for us there were survivors there were eyewitnesses and all these people immediately ran to the papers, so we have a wide selection of eyewitness accounts. Okay. Okay. So a Dutch mail steamer called the Gouverneur, the Gouverneur, they put a lot of extra vowels in there. Okay. <laughs> oh, the okay. Dutch. The Governor General Loudon was in sea in the Sunda Strait the day of the eruption. Okay. Uh, they were making for a town called Talak Batong. Instead of seeking port or trying to outrun the wave when they sight it, the captain sails into deeper water and met the wave head on. Remember, he's in a steamship, not yep. the most maneuverable or stable craft. Yep. At the same time, he orders all the passengers into the hold, and this stabilizes the ship by weighing it down at the bottom and allows okay. it to ride over the crest of the wave while they're still like far enough out at sea for that to be possible. That's that's some pretty good captaining of a ship there, my friend. Most of the time when you see a tsunami, you run for higher ground. And this guy was like, you know what? We're going to sail straight towards it. And don't worry, it's going to be fine. Yeah, we got this. Uh, So here's an eyewitness account from one of the sailors who remained on deck. Okay. Quote, suddenly we saw a gigantic wave of prodigious height advancing towards the seashore with considerable speed. Immediately, the crew managed to set sail in face of the imminent danger. The ship had just enough time to meet with the wave from the front. The ship met the wave head-on, and the Loudon was lifted up with a dizzying rapidity and made a formidable leap. 
The ship rode at a high angle over the crest of the wave and down the other side. The wave continued on its journey towards land, and the benumbed crew watched as the sea in a single sweeping motion consumed the town. There, where an instant before had lain the town of Talak Batong, nothing remained but the open sea. End quote. So that's the kind of wow. like massive destruction that yeah. we're talking about. Yeah. By the time the tsunamis have died away, at least 36,417 people are dead. Um, that's the official count that the Dutch authorities made in that year and the year following. Probably many more people died, but we know nope. for sure at least 36,000 people died. That makes it one of the deadliest volcanic events in human history. Yeah. Uh, let's take a look at Krakatoa. Sure. The island itself is gone. Seventy percent of its <laughs> landmass has blown apart, and the remaining thirty okay. percent is just raw cliff covered in ash and pumice. Okay. Underwater, of course, the landscape has changed dramatically. The <laughs> ashfall, lava flow, and pumice form two huge underwater banks that took decades to erode. Wow. Uh, above water, there's no sunlight. You know, because of the ash cloud. Because of the ash cloud, sure. Right, yep. and as that settles into the upper atmosphere, this part of Java and Sumatra experience intense lightning storms for days. So Jeez. no sunlight and then immense uh, electrical storms, which, as you can imagine, hampers rescue and relief efforts. Yeah. So the local effect was dramatic and deadly and very quick. But this eruption was so large, there was also a significant, measurable global impact in addition to the noise. And that's yeah. due to the massive amount of ash and gas that joined the atmosphere during the eruption. Yep. If you're curious about how we know that, <laughs> here's another fun <laughs> Krakatoa fact. Alrighty. You know how at the North Pole and the South Pole, scientists love to go drill up some ice cores to take a look? Yeah. 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 So ice core studies in Greenland and Antarctica show a huge okay. spike in sulfuric acid in 1883. This spike is so big and so dramatic, it's one of the markers they use to date core samples because it's so consistent and noticeable at sure. both poles. Both poles, north and south, shows that yep. same huge spike. Uh, have you ever thought about sulfuric acid in the atmosphere? You know, I have a lot of hobbies. Um... <laughs> I like to sit around and just think about... <laughs> <laughs> but uh, sulfuric acid in the atmosphere isn't really one of them. It's not great. Um, no. So in this case, the sulfuric acid is not just like raining down over the poles. It is combining with the volcanic ash in the upper atmosphere to trigger a phenomenon called a volcanic winter. Yep. And this is something that occurs when debris and gases block the solar radiation we depend on to heat the planet. Yeah, it's not great. When you talk about one volcano having this effect, like this massive yeah. worldwide effect on the atmosphere... Again, it's kind of hard to wrap your head around. <laughs> Very hard. Uh, so with Krakatoa, the volcanic winter caused a global temperature drop of three quarters of a degree, which doesn't sound like much. Uh, no, that sounds humongous. Right. It's thought to have caused four years of cooler temperatures and increased precipitation until enough of the ash and the acid had fallen back to Earth. Um, so at that point, the atmosphere was able to let in more sunlight. Thank you, solar radiation. And mm -hmm. it kind of regulates itself again. There was so much ash and debris in the upper atmosphere, it also caused red skies at sunset worldwide. Wow. Yeah. It's really bad the first winter, <laughs> the winter One of 1883, imagine. 1884. 
And then it gets less dramatic over time. These red skies were so intense that some of them seen in North America were so bright they were thought to be distant forest fires. Wow. Yeah. North America's on the other side of the planet. Yup. So Krakatoa is sometimes considered to be the first modern disaster. And what people mean by that is that it's the first big disaster to take place within the context of quick, accurate communication. Okay. This is 1883, and telegraph lines have just been laid down over most of the world. In addition to that, millions of people were within that area where they could hear the explosion itself. So there's immediately a lot of interest. You know, my sheep are running around. What's going on in Indonesia? That kind of thing. Right. Because naturally, that would be your first thought. Not that Jed's firing his rifle again. <laughs> well, after you talk to the sheep and they're like, you know, that didn't sound like Jed. That's a volcano, actually. We we sheep are very good volcanologists. Yes. Surprising that more of them don't have PhDs. They're very bad at filing their papers. That was so horrible. I'm going to leave it in. I appreciate it. Thank mm-hmm. you. So papers around the world are covering the death and destruction in, within hours, the New York Times is running yeah. a front page story on this eruption. Journalism back then was <laughs> different we, than it is now. Journalism back then <laughs> needed very large air quotes around the word journalism. It's all about selling papers. I mean, today, of yeah. course, we take the truth much more seriously and we would never oh, not, yeah. lie mm. or obfuscate or spin anything. And the other thing... The other thing that affects this kind of like viral trending moment for Krakatoa is that telegraph operators in Indonesia are sending out reports as the eruption is happening. As as it's happening. Yeah, Mm -hmm. absolutely. So we're getting it in real time. I was able to find one that was written on the afternoon of August 28th, so hours after the, the four loud bangs. Okay. Here's a quote from a telegraph operator in Batavia. Quote, Batavia now almost quite dark, gaslights extinguished during the night, unable communicate with Angers, fear calamity there, several bridges destroyed, river having overflowed through Rush Sea inland. End quote. Uh, they were right to be concerned about Angers, which is a port city. I can't yep. remember if it's, I think it's in northern Java, I'm not sure. Um, okay. It had been completely wiped out. Wow. So from there, like, there's just so much data generated from yep. this. You know, you have people on the ground who have instruments. You have eyewitnesses who want to tell their story. Um, yep. You have photographs. You have illustrations. So the Krakatoa story becomes, like, daily updates, um, illustrated eyewitness accounts. And it just really, like, seizes the imagination of the world. So sure, kind of, like, fashionable people in London... We're talking about Krakatoa, fashionable people in, I shouldn't say fashionable people, people with a newspaper subscription in Canada sure. were discussing the exact same things. Um, and in North Africa was and in Australia. It was a worldwide event, yeah. It was absolutely like a worldwide, it was almost viral in a way. Sure. Um, it was, you know, the one news story that people were talking about all over the world. Yeah. So various scientific bodies later collect these like telegraph reports and you can almost, because they're they're timed so precisely, you can almost yep. use them as evidence in developing theories of how the eruption unfolded. Okay. So in a way, the eruption of Krakatoa gives geologists the perfect case study to look at as they're trying to, like, model and predict volcano behavior. Sure. Krakatoa is just getting a lot of attention. Sure. So along with these useful scientific leaps forward... 
the the story like the narrative of krakatoa is sure more than you would think for a volcano story mm. well this wasn't just any volcano the way it kind of crops up in pop culture is really interesting i'm just going to give you two okay. examples sure uh both from my childhood both fond childhood memories oh okay you ready okay. this was back in 1885 86 hey, i'm not that much what? older than you are <laughs> it's true you're not now i'm injured and i'm gonna have to take a minute <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so uh, flashing back to my childhood, the first connection yeah. that I can make to uh, Krakatoa is the B-52 song Lava. I was going to say, yep. it's got to be a B-52's reference. Yay. Um, I read the lyrics top to bottom. Sure. I think what they're talking about is sexual attraction compared to volcanic eruptions, <laughs> which sounds like As really... with many B-52's songs, <laughs> most things are about how to dance, have a good time, and how hot you are. Exactly. Um, and in this song, they're using volcanoes to uh, make a nice metaphor. I'm going okay. well, to give you a little I, quote you know. here. Oh, oh, please do. I want to sing it because I love this song. Can you, can you read it in a Fred Schneider voice? I'm actually going to read it as a piece of poetry. Oh, okay. Are you all ready? Right, all right. I'll accept that. Yes. Quote, my body's burning like a lava from a Mauna Loa. My heart is breaking like a Krakatoa. Oh, Krakatoa, east of Java, molten bodies, fiery lava, fire, fire, burning bright. Turn on your love lava. Turn on your lava light. End quote. I mean, beautiful. That is, that is, I don't understand how that wasn't a, a candidate for Poet Laureate. But, okay. I know you love to make fun of the B 52s. No, I love the B 52s, <laughs> man. I, I feel nothing but pride that they finally worked their way onto our podcast. I'm sure this is a high point for them, too. It's been a long time coming. <laughs> it has. I know. I remember singing this song like on the bus <laughs> on my way to junior high. And not oh, having sure. a clue. I was just the like, oh, they love volcanoes, all. don't they? Yep. I wish volcanoes I had a friend to great. talk about volcanoes with. <laughs> <laughs> oh, childhood. Anyway, this is my karaoke song, if you ever invite I, me to a karaoke I dig party. It. I dig it. That is fantastic. Uh, I just have to note, obviously, they've put Krakatoa on the wrong side of Java. It should be yeah. west of Java. Yeah, we're gonna we're gonna let that slide. We it's, are, you know, yeah. po poetic license. Because I think they might have been inspired by the 1969 disaster movie Krakatoa East of Java. Ah, uh, right. Yes, an that easy would mistake do it. to make. Mm -hmm. uh, my second and earlier fond Krakatoa memory is William Henry okay. Dubois' novel The Twenty One Balloons. Oh sure, yeah, yeah, yeah. Did you ever read that? I did. I did. It's depressing. <laughs> It's not depressing. It's brilliant. That is the YA novel. I think it's written for fifth graders. I hate to tell you how much I read this. I was way above huh. fifth grade the last time I read it. Um, I mean, in the novel, we're all Krakatoa way above is fifth grade. <laughs> unfair. Unfair. I, uh, true. <laughs> in the novel, anyway, Krakatoa is secretly inhabited by twenty families who are living off a diamond mine inside the mountain. You have to kind of suspend your disbelief for this. Uh, sure. It's a very no, cool I'm, book. I'm, I'm here for it. Yeah. Uh, each family goes by a letter of the alphabet and runs a theme restaurant. Okay. And they have all these cool inventions inside their houses. Sure. So in the novel, everyone on Krakatoa just lounges around collecting diamonds, inventing things, 
uh, a lot of eating in the novel. He does a lot of sure. describing of food and, you know, just relaxing until the eruption, which they escape from in hot air balloons. Right, right, right. Which would be your first instinct if giant plumes of lava, smoke, ash, and a pyroclastic flow are headed, you know, towards you is to climb into lightning a storms. Don't forget the lightning storms. Well, you'll just sail right through them. You're in a balloon. Balloons aren't conductive. I don't know that William Pinet de Bois <laughs> really understood what volcanic <laughs> eruptions were about. This was this was a a case of of a writer not doing the research, perhaps. No, I think he was just like leaning really hard on his imagination, and he came up with I'm, a great story. But as an adult, hundred percent here you know, for it. I want to go back in time and tell my little ten year old self. You know what? You really shouldn't get on a hot air balloon if there's a volcanic eruption it's not a good idea it's not the primary means of escape it sounds super twee when i'm describing it (laughs) no 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 it's a very sweet book i just i for some reason i'm remembering it very tragically but it's been a long time since i've read it so i might have no it's not tragic nobody dies krakatoa is also said to have inspired edvard monk's red sky in the scream painting which he would have witnessed as a young man in norway interesting yeah remember i was telling you about those bright red skies yeah 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 so that would make a lot of sense waits 20 years to paint the scream but in real time jam w turner and william ashcroft are like lugging their paint kits out into the fields and painting these like plain air landscapes yeah yeah and they're using these intense cadmium red and orange skies like not sunsets just like a field with a red sky overhead yeah, exactly. And then the really interesting thing is they do this like over the course of a few years and gradually the okay. redness starts to like die down and, and approach the horizon in a more normal okay. way. Yeah, it's super cool. That is neat. I didn't I didn't realize that uh, the scream might be a Krakatoa sky. That's very cool. It's a theory that popped up in uh, 2004, I think. But Monk wrote sometime... In the late 1800s, I'm plucking out okay. facts here like I remember them. He was, you know, walking along and he looked up and he saw this red sky and it was as though nature gave this loud shriek and that was the, gotcha. the red sky. So people okay. think that that's the connection, but I don't know. I, You know what? I, I like I'm it. I'm here for it. I like it. Yeah. And they certainly did have the red sky as far north as Norway. Okay. Today, Krakatoa is still understood to be an active volcano. We talked about Anak Krakatau earlier in the episode. And through the 20th and into the beginning of the 21st centuries, people kept a really close eye on how fast it was growing and how much it was erupting. Um, There is a really interesting part of the nonfiction book, Krakatoa by Simon Winchester, where he talks about like sailing up the Sunda Strait as a young man in the 70s and then doing it again in the 90s. And his mind was just blown at how big Anak Krakatau had gotten between, you know, in those 25 years. Hmm. At the same time that Anak Krakatau was growing, people were really Hmm. still underestimating the forces at work underneath that little kink in the subduction zone underneath the Sunda Strait. Sure. Uh, part of my research was watching a documentary that came out in 2008, and they showed this nice uh, American geologist kind of trotting up the side of a Nat Krakatau and pointing okay. out that the color of the ash and the pumice, the kind of like bubbly nature yep. of the pumice and the dark color, indicated that it was a pretty cool volcano, like it was going to probably build itself up for another hundred years before it had a serious eruption. 
Okay. This was in 2008. It actually erupted yeah. for real in 2018. Oh my goodness. Okay. So we so need to work on our metrics there. 10%. Yeah. <laughs> 100%. Interesting. It blew itself apart just like Mama Krakatoa. And it, it caused okay. a five meter high tsunami, which killed mm. 400 people in Java and Sumatra. Again, the people who are oh, living on the shore. Yeah. 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 Um, but again, in 2018, we have early warning systems. We have evacuation plans. Scientists keeping an eye on this. And in Indonesia, you know, it's one of the most volcanically active countries yeah. in the world. Yeah, people yeah. know what to look for. And it still was too late for 400 people to evacuate. Wow. Uh, since 2018, the remaining one third of Anak Krakatau is busy building itself back up for another try. Uh -huh. okay. So to give you some idea of how active baby Krakatoa is, it has erupted okay. four times since the beginning of this year, 2022. Okay. Mm -hmm. And that is the story of the cataclysmic and ongoing eruption of Krakatoa. This is the, the volcano that shook the world. It, it really is. It yeah. really is. Although we gave you slightly exaggerated credentials at the top of the show, we do fact-check our stories in an effort to give you the best disaster experience possible. If you'd like to read more about our sources, a complete bibliography is available in our show notes. If we got anything wrong, please let us know. You can do that by emailing us at relative.disasters at gmail.com, or if you'd like to shame us publicly, and we know you do, why not use our Instagram at relative.disasters? Disasters. Just kidding. Everyone who um, has a constructively critical comment <laughs> DMs us and is really nice and is like, I love the show. We have the nicest, the nicest we, listeners. Seriously. Our, our listeners are amazing. And Thank then you. they say, please fix this problem. <laughs> yeah. And then we do. Like, that's the thing. If you point it out, we will fix it. Eventually. Did anybody get back to us on the washing clothes and gasoline? Not yet. Okay. But uh, I'm right. holding out hope. I really right. want to know the answer to that. Thank you so much for joining us for this episode of Relative Disasters. We hope you've enjoyed the story and the discussion, and please join us next time for another strange, dangerous, and interesting event from history. My brother has selected our next disaster. What's it going to be, Greg? Well, we're going to go back to uh, the olden times of France. Ooh. We're going we're gonna to travel back a little ways to when a small village in France was under siege by what might have been a supernatural wolf, or it could have been anything from a hyena wearing armor mm. to just a regular wolf that was mistaken for being very large because it's kind of hard to tell the difference when they're trying to eat you. Now, could that um, wolf have also had armor on? Uh, yes, sure. Why not? I'll take it. Uh, so next episode, we are going to examine the strange and very dangerous case of La Bête du Gavaudin, the nice. Beast of Gavaudin. I'm super excited about this. I love this story. Awesome. I am so excited to hear about that. <laughs>